I want to tell you about Persistent Vision Records. They are a brand new label that has hit the ground running. They've just reissued two records from Screamo Legends Page 99, the singles collection, as well as Document Number 8, which is an all-time personal favorite of mine. But they're not just doing reissues. They've also just released a split between Habak and Lagrimas, who are two bands that I've absolutely got my eye on that are so good. You can order these great releases directly through PersistentVisionRecords.com or through DeathWishInc.com. Give them a follow on Instagram at Persistent Vision Records so you don't miss out on what's coming next. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 158. And my guest this week, it's Ryan fucking Patterson. Holy shit. Louisville legend. He's played in bands like Coliseum, The National Acrobat, Black Cross, Automatic, The Ink and Dells, and currently Photo Crime, who have a brand new album called Accelerated out this Friday, September 8th. They're actually on tour right now as well. If you are in Brooklyn, go catch them tonight. They're playing at the at St. Vitus. Check out information over at photocrime.com, and that's F-O-T-O, Crime. The band is awesome, and Ryan is awesome. This is a really, really great conversation. Uh, I've been a fan of Ryan's work for over 20 years, and I've had the pleasure of hanging out with them a handful of times, but this is a, this is a really, really lovely conversation and very, very inspiring. Uh, truly an absolute legend of a person. He also runs uh, shirtkiller.com if, uh, if you are interested in some sick-ass band shirts. A lot of great clients. I mean, I've ordered so many of my shirts from shirtkiller.com and this isn't even in a, this isn't an advertisement. This is just me throwing, throwing facts at you. Also, I want to let you know, if you're new here, head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where there is a bonus episode where Ryan answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that plus tons of other bonus material, bonus episodes. You can submit questions to upcoming guests, all sorts of fun stuff. It helps support the show and it would mean a whole lot to me. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with the man, the legend, the leather jacket personified. It's Ryan Patterson. I'm now recording in GarageBand. Um, you good on your end? Cool. Let's do a one, two, three clap. Let's try to let's do our best here. One, two, three. Cool. Sounds good. Um, all right. Well, here we go. Uh, Ryan, it's such a it's such an honor to be joined with you today. Um, you're someone who has been a figment in my life for for quite a while, whether it's been through your art or through your music. Um, we've met on multiple occasions, but it's been a long time. So it's nice to see you, man. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. 
How's uh, are you in Louisville today? Are you still you you still live there? How, did you ever live anywhere outside of there? Because when I think of that place, I think of you and your brother and so much of that music scene. Have you always been there? Yeah, pretty much. I was born in Lexington. Evan and I were born in Lexington, which is an hour east. And then when I was eight, we moved to a small town called Elizabethtown. Okay, it's about forty-five minutes south of Louisville, and that's where I that's where we grew up and got into music and. Probably a lot of your questions will relate to that little town, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. So when did you end up moving to the to Louisville proper? When I was um, uh, 18, I guess, you know, like out of high school. Okay. And my, my parents are all from here, so I have many generations back here. They just went to college, then got a job in this small town. And so my dad lives up here. My mom still lives down south a little bit. Okay, very cool, very cool. Um, well, yeah, I mean, let's just, we could just kind of kick right into it. So like when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you remember connecting with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house, but something that, um, you know, you kind of found on your own. And this might actually be kind of a tricky question because I know you and your brother obviously played a lot of music together. So I don't know if you two were ever on separate paths or if you discovered things first, but yeah, well, let's just uh, dig into that question. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, when we were kids, I think we were on a very similar path and I think he got into a lot of stuff that I got into. And then there were certain bands that I saw when we were kids as like his bands. Like when we were little kids, I would think of Dinosaur Jr. and De La Soul as like his bands he was really into. And I liked those bands too, but he had those cassettes and I had something else. Okay. So this was a hard question because I was trying to think like, you know, something that you organically discover, but really something that popped into my mind. That's probably most of these answers are just like the the immediate memories. We went to like a cookout of somebody my dad worked with and her boyfriend or husband was like, Hey, I'm going to make you these tapes, but you can't tell your parents. Oh, okay. And so he put, um, NWA straight out of Compton on one side and Scarface born killer on side B So those were like heavily, you know, heavy secrets for my parents, right? That would have been bad trouble. Yeah. And those were like my grass mowing music. So both those really felt like pre-punk, pre-hair metal for me. Like those were like my things that I knew was secret. I don't even know if I played them for Evan. And you can see where that so directly relates gets into punk and hardcore because the energy of hip hop at that point in time, gangster rap was so hard, you know, like, I mean, I, I would put the first four songs on straight out of Compton, like next to discharge or void or something, you know, that's no, it's just relentless. It's absolutely for sure. That's really awesome. And that's, that's cool that you had like the cool family member who was, you know, s- saw something in you to be like, Oh, this is something that, you know, he'll enjoy or something like that. You know? Yeah. I mean, it was some dude, like I don't, I never saw him oh, after oh, that. Oh. It's my knowledge. He was like a, a guy who was related living with this per I don't know if I think he was a boyfriend he was like living with my dad's coworker. Oh okay so yeah not family but like a, but yes he anyway like maybe even kind of a stranger saw something in you to be like oh this is something that this kid would get into that's awesome. And kind of like in that pre-punk mixtape world where I had mixtapes that got to me from people I never met in person when I was into getting into punk this was one of those things it was just this kind of weird holy grail handed over to you and it was it was dangerous and scary. And I, I really feel like if I hadn't 
been exposed to that, I might not have been as open to punk and hardcore when I discovered that stuff. Because obviously those those are styles of music that are just like mind melting, right? When you hear them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I added this question, so I apologize for it not uh, being in the questionnaire for you that I that I sort of uh, prepped you with. But um, because you obviously are known for your art as well, I thought to ask, do you remember the first album cover that maybe you saw that struck something struck a chord with you to be like, oh, this is, you know, this like is making me feel something and maybe influenced you wanting to get into that world? Yeah, I mean, I would say that would be like stuff from my dad's record collection. He had a huge record collection, so he was and is a Beatles fanatic. So I, I would say something like Beatles Revolver or like Led Zeppelin II has like a weird collage. Um, you know, there, there was so much collage art in all that 60s stuff, and I think that really inspired me. And I, and I can see the, the, the through line between that stuff and then like the Sex Pistols collage art and things like that. There's a Steppenwolf cover. I can't remember what the title is, but it has a, a huge skull like right in the middle. And I saw that recently and, and I know that was in my dad's record collection. And I'm like, well, that might be the, Oh, that might be the, where skulls started for me or something like that, you know? So yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome, but I, I can't, it's weird. I can't think pre so much of my life is like punk is ground zero. So it's hard, it's hard <laughs> for me. It's cool to, to, to be instigated to think these things because I do see the, I know all the punk starting points yeah. But with the other stuff, when you're really young and your mind is so malleable, uh, it's not as clear for me. But I would say it's those things probably. Right. That's a that's a good shout. I'll, man, just even thinking about Beatles, Beatles album covers, like the Sgt. Pepper cover alone, I feel like is a cover that even, you know, doesn't matter how old you are. It has a you get a different reaction from it every single time, because as you get older, you start to learn the faces of some of the people that you maybe didn't recognize when you're a child that like as you get older when you revisit that album cover you start to notice other people's faces and like why those were maybe put on there and like yeah it's a it, it makes a lot of sense that's a fascinating thing same with like the the stones some girls cover is another one that you could just get lost in where you're like what is happening here right and all that stuff was kind of scary to me like uh, i this is a, a t tangent but <laughs> i heard a little bit of uh whole lot of love led zeppelin which is on led zeppelin 2 in a truck stop bathroom when we were just out playing some shows and the psychedelic part in that there's like a psychedelic breakdown it scared the shit out of me when i was a kid and all that stuff was just it's weird because now it seems very you know the baby boomer thing is kind of maybe watered it all down but that music was fucking scary you know there's weird stuff going on a lot of those people died obviously and like it was a wild, heavy time, and, and that's really, it's cool, the, the the weirdness and the scariness of that stuff. No, for sure. Absolutely. So do you remember, and this is a, you know kind of a, a fun question to kind of segue into it, but do you remember the first album that you remember buying for yourself, and was there like a cool record store in your hometown, or, did, or how, what was your access to music? Yeah, there was not a cool record store in my hometown. Uh, the first thing, I, I remember buying the Tom Petty Full Moon Fever cassette with my own money at Walmart. So that's what kind of small town kid I was. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, so that that's the first one I can remember buying with my own money. You know, I remember they had those little, those little like plastic 
things around the cassette, like, you know, anti-theft things, and you'd get home and you'd cut those off or whatever. Right. So, yeah, that was one of the first ones. And, and then there was a, a record store in our mall called Disc Jockey, and they carried Discord, um, things that were on Caroline. So, you know, you could get the Misfits and you could get most of the major Discord releases at that time. And, and that's another reason I've always been really pro- accessibility in punk rock because if that stuff hadn't had major distribution in the late 80s early 90s i wouldn't have had access to it right 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 it's it reminds me an argument that uh happened with an old band member of mine was when our very first seven inch ended up getting uh put in hot topic and i remember it was like fuck that like we shouldn't be in hot Topic, whatever and my thought was like, there are hot topics in towns where there's no record stores, you know, like we're at the point where there's a hot topic in just about every single mall. And this was that era when hot topic was like randomly selling a lot of vinyl. Remember that it was like very random in like 2009 or something. Um, but yeah, that was my, I mean, similar thought. It's like, you know, it almost makes you, uh, you know, a bit, it sounds extreme, but like, it almost feels a bit classist to like, you know, shit on that happening because you're like yeah there's there's not always you know we're so lucky to have cool record stores in these bigger towns but like the smaller towns don't they get walmart they get best buy and that's kind of it you know yeah i mean that's it is absolutely classist it's 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 you know it's exclusionary and i know like uh the idea of gatekeeping is maybe you know popular now it doesn't i don't i don't have any interaction with anybody ever saying that but i have those experiences and i I value those experiences that I had as a kid because I thought it, I think it turned me from a twerp into somebody that understood. And I, I value feeling intimidated at punk shows when I was a kid because I was a stupid kid and, yeah. and I had to learn and so, and no one was mean to me per se, but they were intimidating. And same thing with guitars and tattoo shops and everything that seemed really like scary. Yeah. So yeah, I I think like, if you're seven inches in hot topic, right? Like that doesn't mean you've sold out it. And it doesn't even mean it's going to get sold. It just means that somebody might stumble upon it. Yeah. And it's so funny. My first reaction also, aside from like, Oh, there's hot topics in towns is like, that's a loss leader ass store. So like, I just, (laughs) I just know that they just bought 300 or 400 copies off of our label. So I know that because of that one transaction, we're now paid off. So like, that's sick. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. it re-injects into the community in weird ways, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what was the first concert you went to? Well, there's two, like all these things, there's yeah. two worlds, right? Like my parents took me to see Don Henley on the end of the Innocence tour when I was, I don't know what, I mean, 11 or 12 maybe. Yeah. And I fucking loved it, to be fair. Like I bought the shirt, you know, I, I, I loved that record, you know, Boys of Summer was like on the record prior to that, you know, so he was cool for a minute there. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. And it was a big show. It was at Louisville Gardens, which is a defunct, like mid-level, you know, a uh, small, like a basketball arena type thing. Okay. And uh, it was awesome. You know, I loved it. And then uh, I would say maybe the next year, my first like punk show was seeing Jawbox. So... It was like a weird thing where my parents would take us to Don Henley and the Beach Boys and Hall & Oates and all that stuff that I'm 
happy we got to see. Absolutely. But of course, as I became a little shit, I wanted to go see all the hard, punk bands and hardcore bands. So, um, but yeah, man, I thought it was super cool with that Don Henley shirt. Hell yeah. School. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that thing is long gone, right? Yeah, it's very long gone. Okay. Uh, but yeah. So, I mean, like I'd be, you know, I feel like I'd be silly not to ask then, then what, what was the, the way you got into punk and hardcore? Like, was there a specific local band that kind of showed you the way or was it something that you just saw an album cover at, at a disc jockey and thought it looked cool? I think it was the combination of skateboarding and like MTV 120 minutes. Like those were the two things, you know, skateboarding. I met some friends that were skaters and they knew red hot chili peppers and, you know, and the cure was on MTV. It was such a weird time because like bands that we all see as like so absolutely authentic now were you know, on, on there right next to something that, I don't know, in my perspective, maybe because I was a kid, music didn't seem as trashy right. then, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? So, but yeah, that, that was the way for sure. And so it was like all the classic alternative and, and indie bands of, of the eighties. That was like my, my entryway and skateboarding was huge because they'd have the back cover of Thrasher would be the sessions magazine or sessions skateboard ad. And they would have just all these rectangles of t-shirts and it would be like youth of today, Smith's joy division. So you knew these were bands, but you didn't know how to hear them. Uh, yeah. And you know, I'd even cut the little rectangles out and like tape them on my, uh, on my notebooks and stuff. So like, so, which of course is like, you know, what I do now for living forever. So it's like, <laughs> it's all very, very like, you know, full circle. Um, but yeah, all that, just, just those things like Tom Knox was a skater who was really into minor threat and he was straight edge and, and you just hear about those things. You could read about it and find it. And it was, it was, it was just exciting. It was like digging for treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, so with your interest in art, did, were you already like, were you already like, for example, like drawing and painting and stuff like that? Or was it? Or were you just immediately drawn to the collage aspect and sort of like that's where you started chipping away at it? I drew and painted as a kid, yeah. Like drew all the time, drew my own comic books, still have them. And Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and have like my mom gave us some piles of stuff the other day and they were like, I drew, I had drawn like Captain America and the thing, you know, covered, colored the thing orange, you know, and did all that and then did some painting classes, always took art classes at school. Um, in middle school, I painted, or maybe early high school, painted the the cover, the minor threat, like Alec Mackay down on his knees, like a big painting of that. And, you know, just stuff like that. So I always did that training, and but not super seriously. And so when it, I don't really remember my, you know, I was designing my own demo tapes and stuff, like cut and paste, all that kind of thing. So I was doing that from high school onward. Like even before I had bands, I was making fake posters and fake demo tapes. And then when you had the band, you started yeah. assembling them and photocopying for real. So, uh, you know, the next question I'd probably ask is, is uh, what your first instrument was and when you started playing and stuff like that. But it's interesting because when I talk to people and also think back on my own experiences, when you're a kid, it feels like you're really into something and you're 
that's like the only thing that matters to you. And then you kind of get into something else. And then the thing you were really into maybe takes a back burner. And it's kind of more rare when someone kind of keeps up with all of them. So you mentioned you were into skateboarding, you mentioned you were into painting and stuff. So when you started playing an instrument, did that take over? Or were you still kind of committed to all three? I will say that skateboarding died when I started driving. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was, it, which is sad, because we didn't use it as transportation. But when we could drive, you know, we maybe skated a little bit, but like, you know, started driving and started having girlfriends and started going to shows. Yeah. Um, but so I played saxophone in, in middle school band. And so I guess in some ways that was my first instrument, but I didn't really take it seriously. And then I've picked it back up in the last couple of years a little bit. Was it easy for you to, to just kind of get right back into it? Or was it kind of like starting from scratch again? I mean, I really suck at it. That's for sure. But, <laughs> you know, like, but, um, but it's, it was easier than I expected. I didn't think I would still be able to, to do the embouchure and like, and, and, and the, handling the mouthpiece is pretty easy. There's some details I'm not super good at, but, uh, I can pick it up and make some sounds and, and that's, that's kind of how I am with any instrument. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a virtuoso, but so I did that and that kind of fell away. But then my friend, we'd already started a band and I was the singer, but my friends, our drummer's older brother had a really shitty Les Paul copy called an encore. And he, it was just like sitting in the corner somewhere and he sold it to me for 50 bucks. And that was my first instrument. You know, that was like my first guitar and it was so terrible. You know, it was like <laughs> always doing all these things to try to make it better and make it playable. And it never really worked. But yeah, just immediately writing songs and, and just like didn't care about anything other than making songs. And that's kind of how I feel today still. Like I don't care about the, I don't know, everything is just a tool to create, you know? And, and it's interesting that that's kind of how it started from day one. Did you end up taking any sort of lessons or was it like your friends kind of showing you like, oh, this is a bar chord. This is how you kind of can play this one punk song that you already like. Like what what was uh, the entry point for like getting your sort of brain wrapped around how to play? Yeah, basically a friend showing me how to make a power chord. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I remember having like some chord charts. So I learned like the few chords I still know how to play, you know, your D's, A's, G's, you know, whatever the really basic stuff. And one friend had a dad who was in a cover band and he had lots of guitars, but his dad was kind of harsh and the guitars were like, if you open this guitar, you know, you're going to get fucking, you know, in trouble. So those were like, when his parents would leave, we'd like open those up, you know? And so his dad, I think made him take some lessons. So he would tell me some things. And then I had another friend that was really into Randy Rhodes and would like just sit around and kind of shred all the time. And he taught me a little bit. But yeah, mainly it was just, just getting into it, just making, making songs. You know, it was yeah. Like as soon as you know a power chord, that's all you fucking need. Yeah. One of the, it's, he hasn't come up on the show, so I've, I've never shared this, but um, funny enough. So I was raised having to go to church and all of that sort of stuff. And Randy Rhodes' mom went to our church. Whoa. And she was this small very quiet, very to herself, older woman who would just come by herself, kind of sit by herself. She didn't seem to have many friends or anything like that, but was there every Sunday and, um, ended up, uh, I don't know how, you know, like what the circumstance was, but at the church still, which still is around, um, in like sort of a walkway 
between the church and like it's also a pri- like a small small private school it's, it's where i went to elementary school um there's a, a little memorial for randy Rhodes. like there's just like a, a thing that just says like you know dedicated to randy Rhodes, like rest in peace like kind of think like a little memorial even though it's like he's not buried there but it's just always been you know it's one of those things where like my mom told me as a kid like oh yeah that's the guitar player of Ozzy Osbourne's right. mother. And as a kid, you're just like, you don't realize how crazy that is. Like, you're just like, oh, interesting. Like, I've heard that name before or whatever. But as I've gotten older, and she's sadly passed away probably at this point, like 10, you know, some odd years ago, 15 years ago or something. But um, I think about her now as I'm older, where I'm like, what a trip that, you know, like she was just around. And like, you know, and then I think my mom told me that, um, she used to drag him to church on, on like the holidays, you know, like on the Christmas Eve service or something like that. And every now and again, I remember as a kid, she would have someone who looked like a real rocker with her, but like, obviously he had already passed at that point, but like, I'm assuming maybe a brother or a family friend or something like that, that would like uh, come with her to church so she wouldn't be alone on those holidays. But yeah, just something that like has circled my brain a lot as a, as I'm older, where I'm like, man, like, it's it's wild that as you're older, the things you take stock of where you're like, that's really pretty interesting that she's yeah, around. Sure. And, and that like at one point, Ozzy was probably considered the most evil musician of all time. And, and the church has a little thing for Randy. And absolutely. Like Randy probably came to the church like high on Coke or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? 1,000%. 1,000%. Yeah. It's funny. I, I I just was looking at something and and ended up on a Randy Rhodes not not that I'm really a fan or anything, but like ended up on a little wormhole about his guitars. And she had, she, his mom had signed a guitar that some dude bought, but his name was Randy. So she was like, to Randy, you're a true fan, whatever her name was. Yeah. And it was like for sale somewhere, but it was like, it was kind of wild. Like the dude's name was also Randy. Wow. But, uh, that's funny you mentioned that because that was like two weeks ago. I oh, interesting. That. Yeah. 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 Wow. Very, wild. very wild. So, <laughs> uh, you mentioned you had already been in like a band before you started playing guitar. So, I mean, it's always fun. What we'll talk to you about? What was your very first band? Yeah. My first band was called Synapsis and I was the singer. And then I later played guitar some and yeah, it was just like me and my high school buddies, you know, and we, uh, we were all about it. You know, we, we played, this will lead into your, your yeah. next question, I guess, but like we played our first show at the Heartland festival, which was like the little, like, like a little summer outdoor festival in our little town in the park around a lake. So we played under a tent with like a fold out stage and some like, you know, cover band rocker dudes played. I think I want to say we played last and they played, I mean, yeah, they played before us, but yeah, we played our own songs. We, we covered Lemonhead's cover of Luca, (laughs) you know, like, uh, we did some other covers. I know we covered, we, we covered a Fugazi song, but we only used the lyrics and we wrote our own music. You ever think about how much they would have loved that? (laughs) Well, we, we sent it to them and we called because back then you could get the number somehow. It was like on some, and we called and talked to Ian and, I think we called and asked permission and he said, yes. And then he wrote us back after we sent it to him. And he said, you know, he said something like your version is better than ours or just something kind of funny. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. So it was very sweet. And we probably just didn't know how to learn a Fugazi song back then. Right. Yeah. Um, 
but it was 23 beats off from uh from uh you know the kill taker yeah so we we had like this yeah it was it's funny to think about now oh my god that's so cool so it sounds like your band was already pretty well versed in like alternative music if you're if you're doing like a lemonheads thing and also you're already very aware of fugazi so were you guys mostly doing covers or did you have originals too we mostly had originals, yeah. I yeah. remember we covered Just Like Heaven, because which is funny because Dinosaur Jr. covered Just Like Heaven. So we, I don't know, maybe it was something where we heard one band cover another song, we could understand that that could be done or something. But yeah, yeah it was mostly originals. And we played a lot. And we put out a couple of demo tapes and we, um, we started venturing up into playing in Louisville. Like I gave our demo to Duncan from Endpoint and... Uh, Chris from Falling Forward and, and Mark from Kindle and and then those guys would invite us up to play shows. So like our, I think our biggest show in Louisville, we we um, opened for Guilt at like this huge theater show, and that was cool. And played some other stuff, and I would bring those bands to Elizabethtown. So I brought Guilt and and not, not in point, but Guilt, Falling Forward, and Kindle, Roosevelt's inaugural parade. Like all these bands, and then yeah. and then as it went on, like lots of other touring bands would come through and um, and just like have weird shows and weird spots. Like one place was a a law office basement. This this girl was like, "Hey, my dad has a basement in his in his business," and and so we just did shows there all the time. We'd do them outside in gazebos, just you know, classic like weird DIY shows. So it was awesome. Um, so you know, you you mentioned that band recorded. So um. What was the circumstances in which that band recorded? Was it just like at a friend's place with like a four track or did you end up going to any sort of studios or anything like that? Yeah, we started, we rented an, a cassette eight track and recorded the first demo in our drummer's basement. And, um, you know, I think all of us just kind of collectively recorded that, you know, I, I just, I gotta stop you right there. So it's wild that you could rent an eight track and then, cause I, I, I mean, even thinking about it now, if you handed me one of those, I don't know that I'd be able to figure it out. Those things were <laughs> yeah. very difficult. Like four tracks were the most difficult to me, like learning how to like mix something down before you add another track. Like I can't even imagine trying to figure that out. So uh, was was one of you really smart at knowing how to like just make something like that work or were you guys just figuring it out as you went? Yeah, just figuring it out. We had no idea, you yeah. know, and we were... Were they giving you I, microphones too? Like what's... Yeah, this? you could rent microphones. Okay. There was a shop. They're still around the shop in Louisville and they, we were in our PAs for practice and I mean, I was renting stuff from them into the 2000s and you could, it was actually a great resource. You could go rent a guitar so you could get a better guitar than you had. The first ever half stacks we, we had were rented from there. And it kind of helped you learn this stuff because you're just getting these things, but you didn't have to buy them. Right. Um, so, yeah, we did like a really early Tascam 8-track for the first one. Then we did another demo with like a nicer Tascam 8-track. And I don't think those sound good or anything, but that was definitely like my entryway into learning how to record. And I was recording bands and in my own bands, like demos and some seven inches on those cassette eight tracks into the mid two thousands for sure. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but so we went there, we did those and any of those sounded terrible, but then our big, our big thing was we went to this studio called DSL, which is where all the Louisville hardcore bands recorded. It's where Endpoint and Falling Forward and Guilt and everybody recorded. And in our minds, I don't know if you had this experience, but ever when you were growing up, but like your mind, this is like, 
it's like you're entering electric Ladyland or something right you know but you go and it's like this this fucking dude's house <laughs> you know it was just a, it was just a house there was nothing there he had one room with a huge mixing desk the drums went on the carpet in front of the the fireplace you know bass was direct and even now when i hear those things like the falling forward records were just reissued and i went and listened to it and and I'm like, yeah, the drums sound like they were recorded on a room with carpet. And, you know, it's just really funny. Um, but it was a huge step up. So in, in a lot of ways, I see that as like my first real recording. Do you remember how you were feeling other than just like, wow, like we're in a place like Electric Ladyland? Like, were you, did you take to recording pretty quickly? Like, obviously you said you ended up, you know, kind of doing it for other bands and stuff. So it sounds like you had an interest in it. But um, is it something that made you feel really anxious or were you just very excited about the process? Like, yeah. What, what do you, uh, what do you remember? I think I was just excited. Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, and you were doing probably, you were doing vocals in this band. Yeah. At this point I was just the singer, yeah, we yeah, like yeah. a five piece band with two guitars. Um, so I think I was just excited, you know, I mean, it, I think, I know the guy told us, like, I remember we had just guitar cables as the speaker cables, and the guy was like, yo, you can't do this. And <laughs> sent us off to a store, and we bought speaker cables. That was the first time anyone told us what speaker cables were. Right. And we couldn't use our bass because it wasn't intonated, and so he had a bass. And so it, it's an, a neat thing because he he wasn't a punk. He was just a dude, but he, he was teaching you things. Right. You know? And it, it was invaluable. And I didn't take much interest in his recording process other than the general ideas. And um, I, well, I'm recording this now. I have like a little studio and I've been recording a lot, and uh, but not like for outside people, you know, just for friends and for myself. But I think I've just garnered enough over the years, but I was... Never, I never bugged people too much. Like when I would be in the studio with somebody great, I, I wasn't like, how do you mic the drums? You know, I kind <laughs> right. of, I kind of stepped back because I, I feel like that's their role to play and I'm focusing on other things. But and when we were kids, I don't remember much anxiety with that recording. I mean, definitely had more anxiety later on when there's like more money and, you know, all these fucking things, you know? So yeah. back then it was just like raw excitement, you know? Since you were singing, like, did you ever have uh any sort of nervousness like doing that in front of other people and things like that or were you just like comfortable in your own skin kind of just tracking that stuff because when you do it like with your friends maybe in like an a like a four track eight track situation you're sort of you know you're with your friends and hopefully you know you're not busting balls too much and things like that but like when you're actually at a studio with, in front of a stranger now for the first time like uh was that anything that ever made you feel any certain way I don't think so. I mean, I th I remember feeling. Were you yelling or singing? Kind of singing, kind yeah. of you know, nineties nineties Midwest emos. You know, like sure. not really yelling. I didn't really like hardcore that yelled for a long time. Like, fair. I, it was a long time before I got into anything that was like really yelly because I, I thought that was metal and I didn't like metal. You yeah. Know? So it was all all melody for me. But so. um like after the fact, I can remember feeling like, oh, this isn't, this maybe isn't that good. I can't tell if this is good or bad and that kind of thing. But in the time, the, at the moment, I don't think I, I felt that kind of insecurity. Maybe I should have, you know? <laughs> well, that's I beautiful if you didn't. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. How old were so, you? At, how old were you at that point? Uh, probably 16. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, what was the band that came after that? Because, I mean, when prepping for this, it's like I'm, I'm so aware of a lot of the projects you've done or bands you've done. Um, but there's also ones that I'm like, I know that name, but I'm not super, super familiar with it. So um, what was the next band you did after that? I'd say it's hard to say in a lot of ways because I did so many bands. Like between Synapsis, which was clearly my first band. Yeah. You know, you'd start this other band with a few people. You'd play some shows. You'd break up. You know, we we did like a a more like mineral get-up kids kind of band that called Fire Sign that just put out a demo tape. And we played with all those bands when they came through. And, and we really sucked, you know? <laughs> we really was bad. it... More often than not, with a lot of the same people you were already in a band with, like was it? It's in a town like you know, like not to not to assume, but I, I with Kentucky being you know not a New York or something like that. Like I imagined, it's a very incestuous music scene where everybody's kind of playing with each other. Yeah, in our in in, in Elizabethtown where we grew up, it was tiny. I mean, we're talking about like eight people or something. We would have shows where eighty high school kids would show up, you know, but the people that were in the bands, it was a very small group. Yeah. So, you know, like uh, as Evan got to be 12, 13, he started playing in all these bands with me and he might have a band where he was like the, the main guy and I would play bass in that band. And, you know, we did this band called Holy Angels Academy that was Evan's baby that kind of led to National Acrobat, which was Evan's first thing that I ended up being in later. Um, so, but I, I feel like I was in this band called Union and we put out a seven inch. I played bass for them. They were, there was another band called Union from maybe Buffalo, but we, we were from here and I, I played some shows with them. And then in like 97, maybe I joined this band called the Enkindles who were on initial records. And that was the first full length I recorded. I played bass for them. And those were all my first tours, like real tours, not just like. You that's know, what I was. To Cleveland. Yeah, that's the band that I that I that I look to is like when I think of your earliest stuff that at least I'm from, you know, that I can point to and be like, oh, here's like a a, a direction of stuff that you were a part of. So you weren't in that band from the get go. Like you came on for like the full length. Yeah, I came on like they were called in Kindle and they were just your typical Louisville, you know, Midwestern emo kind of thing. And then they switched to being this kind of more rocket from the crypt, a little more pop punky kind of thing. And that's when they became the and Kindles. And that's, I joined the band early on into that run and I was only in the band for less than a year. Oh, wow. But you know, back then a, a less than a year was a big, you know, it was a long period of time when you were 19, you know? So that was like, you know, they, they hazed me relentlessly. So, but that they would say like, Oh, you're in the big time now. And tease me. <laughs> And, but it really was like, that was my, me going from being this kid in a small town to joining a band that was on initial, had records out, went on tour. You know, we went on tour with like Boy Sets Fire and, uh, you know, wrote like Roosevelt's inaugural parade and two line filler and all these rad bands, you know, it was fun and did weird shit, played real shows, played basement shows, slept on the side of the road, you know, did all the crazy shit. And it was a really fucking wild time and really fun. And it, 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 that is a, that's one of those turning points in my life where like from then on, I was, I was like, had been yeah. given keys, you know, it, it was crazy. It's like, suddenly you're like, okay. And then I, after I left that band kind of concurrently, we did this band called automatic and that band did a bit. 
And then I started working at Initial Records, and then it just kind of just kept going, you know. Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, work, coffeebar.com. Was any of the other bands that you were in before Union, did did you guys ever have any like official release on any like known labels? Like, did you have like what was was the Union 7 inch the first time you were on vinyl? Yeah, yeah, that was it was a four song 7 inch. Actually, we did a four way band comp in town. Union was on the comp with By the Grace of God and a couple of other bands. And that was my first song on a, on a vinyl record. Yeah. My. My hometown bands never put out any vinyl or anything. Like never did a, never did a full length. It was mostly tapes and stuff like that. Got it. Got it. Man, we played a Eperfest many many years ago, and I remember I was in the catering area and uh, sat down to just you know made a plate of food, and then uh, a dude came and just sat next to me, and just struck up a conversation, and it ended up being Duncan from by the grace okay. of God and everything nice, and I, I nice. never met him before and he was just so so friendly and ended up having just like such a lovely long conversation with him um i only bring that up because i haven't seen him since and it was just it was just such a a lovely experience like i've you know there's a plenty of reasons why doing a lot of those european festivals are great you end up meeting so many people that you you know never met in any other circumstance but uh, but that made a lasting impression with me because he was just so welcoming and kind and sweet and i was like that's a that's a good dude right there yeah for he, sure i mean he, he is the person of the louisville scene that was the most encouraging to me i could see that um, immediately <laughs> like yeah, just by he, his he, personality you know to a stranger i could absolutely see how he would be that person for you yeah he he and chris from falling forward but um but mainly duncan were like writing me back corresponding with me D- duncan invited me Actually, I take it back. Mark, who was the singer of Enkindle, he and Duncan lived together. And Mark invited me to like, just kind of like come hang out and sleep over at their house. And I mean, it was like, I'd, you know, you just been entered into Valhalla. You know, I was just a kid. And it's like on the wall is some SG that Duncan broke that was like on Endpoint Records. And it's just like in half, like nailed to the wall and, you know, just hanging out with all them and seeing all the shit they're into and. And Duncan's pulling out like the Teen Idol seven inch and and gave me a copy of the last Endpoint EP on cassette. And, you know, that kind of thing that again, like we talk about gatekeepers and and I don't I think there's this just this beautiful thing that I that I you know, I'm 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 much, much older now, so it's like a, a different thing. But when someone could hand you a cassette of a record that hadn't come out yet and there was no fear of like, you're gonna you know, share this. It was yeah, just like, yeah. this is for you. And I remember that. I remember that having the first Elliot record before it came out and just like, it just, it made it 10 times more special because no one had heard it. And 
that kind of thing was just so fucking exciting. And those people welcoming me in. And while I think I was just a dorky kid from a small town, like there's something that they saw in me, you know, and, and they really ushered me into this. And them and other people have been very instrumental in my life, like ushered me into this life that I still live today. It's really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so then you mentioned um, being on a full length with the Incandels. So uh, was that the record that was with Ed Rose? Yes, yeah. Amazing. Okay, so yeah, I've recorded with Ed Rose too. And, uh, okay, nice. and, and so I know him, uh, know him a little bit as well. What was that experience like for you? I mean, you mentioned being, a Midwest, being into the Midwest emo stuff. Uh, was like the get up kids kind of the, the focal point for wanting to go there. Was that kind of like, yeah. the, okay, go ahead. So yeah, yeah we were, what was we were that buddies like? With, we were buddies with the get up kids and would go out there. I just, I felt like in the year I was in the band, I felt like we played with them so many times and we would just drive out there and stay with them. I remember playing in like an alley with, in Kindle and, and giant's chair and maybe the get up kids, like, like literally just an alley, like outside somewhere. And, um, so yeah, everybody loved the way the Get Up Kids record sounded that Ed did. So we went to Red House and um, I remember on the way out, we had this shitty van, the catalytic converter was spewing sparks out the, out the tailpipe Whoa. and we would stop and the, and the, like the whole muffler would be like red hot and we'd have to wait for it to cool down before we could drive again. Oh my God. And it was a weird scene because I had... I had been kicked out of the band. We kind of had like a mutual thing where I didn't want to be in the band, but wasn't going to quit. And so they kind of were like, yeah, you're out of the band. <laughs> but then I still did some tours and shows and they did that record with them. So yeah, it was just super duper fun. I mean, you know, I had borrowed a music man bass and it just had all this nice gear and it sounded great. And, and I just remember it being super fun, Ed being super nice. It's kind of, a very hazy memory because we were probably there for like two days, you know, right, <laughs> like sure, something like sure. that. Um, and Ed now is like uh, refurbishes Simmons drums. He's known as like the Simmons guy. I don't yeah. know if you've seen this. Yeah, like yeah. So I follow him with that stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, we've we uh, anytime we're through that area, we do our best to at least reach out to him to see if he'll like swing by or whatever. And uh, uh, we've you know seen him a handful of times in these last. 10 years or something like that but he's the one that made such an impression on us because we did our record yeah and like i think we recorded it live we did it in like four days and then mixed it on the fifth day or something like that it was very quick and uh but i mean we were so enamored by the experience because you walk in and you're like you just know this was the room that like casket lottery and coalesce and like get up kids all these bands recorded in um but uh but yeah he it was just it was such an experience and that was our first time ever like recording not in our hometown with our friends you know what i'm saying it was like we're going to the guy that did you know this record or that record uh so when i saw that you had worked with him um it got me psyched for uh to hear your side of it i have warm fuzzy memories about all that time actually i just remember like staying at the get up kids like i think i know jim and i don't remember who else lived in this little like little house you know and it's like yeah i haven't seen those guys in forever either and that's it's weird, man. Like that kind of thing, like Ed, I, and I'm not, I mean, I reach out to people if there's a cause to, but it is totally. wild how, how in this life we live, how instrumental somebody might be. And then you just don't ever see them again. The path diverges, you know? Did you hear about 
the local library thing with the recording studio that he did because this is the coolest no. thing in the entire world to me so one of the last times i really kind of hung with him um so my mom had passed and my brother and i she was from nebraska did like a cross-country trip to to you know bury her ashes and all that sort of stuff in her hometown so we stopped in lawrence my brother hadn't traveled much so like it was an excuse for my brother and i to have this nice you know road trip together sort of celebrate her all that sort of stuff so we stopped in lawrence because it was on the way and i was like you know i hit up ed i was like be excited to see you so um, in the local library, which is, you know, in that part of downtown Lawrence, that's, you know, like the college area where all the cool shops are, the venues are bottleneck, all that sort of stuff. Uh, the local library, they basically if you he, Ed built a studio in there to where if you if you have a library card, you can go record and use that studio. Wow. How cool is that? That's like, amazing. Could you imagine? I mean, like I'm thinking about myself as a kid. I'm sure you as a kid, like having that sort of access, like you talk about renting the a track from this local spot which is so cool but like this like i can't even imagine that sort of accessibility and so talking to ed about it which is really funny he's like i'm loving this project i love the technical side you know he's such a gear nerd and he's such an electronics nerd and stuff so i remember him being like i love it because a, a band will come in I'll show them how to use the stuff. And then I get to leave. I don't have to hear yeah. a lick of music. <laughs> right. I don't have to, I don't have to mix this thing. I get to show them the cool part and then I get to leave. This is a dream, but yeah, the, just the coolest thing in the entire world. Yeah. That's amazing. That is really, really cool. I think about that a lot. I mean, I think that it's kind of like I was saying, where like the rental stuff, it's, there's an accessibility with music that I find I still find to be difficult. Like, I, you know, I'm really into synthesizers and, and recording equipment and that stuff gets so expensive and it becomes unobtainable. And I think that letting, even if you can touch it and see it and hear what it sounds like, I mean, I guess it demystifies it, right? They don't, they don't want to let a, a $10,000 synthesizer be in your hands because you'd be like, oh, it sounds as good as the... $2,000 one or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I was having this discussion with somebody about microphones today because I was asking some suggestions and, and he's like, you know, your, your $200 mic will probably be just as good as the $2,000 mic in this scenario. And that's an awesome resource. I think that's just incredible and, and essential. I just think those kind of things, it can just change a life in such a huge way forever. Absolutely. God, it's so funny. You even saying that like, it makes me think of so being like a big vinyl nerd and things like that. It makes me laugh because people spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars on these insanely audiophile receivers and and speakers and all that sort of stuff. But then they'll put on the Minor Threat record, and you're like, well, "This thing sounds like sh I mean, it sounds beautiful, but like you're putting on this thing that was recorded so poorly through your." hella expensive thing so it's just like it's it, you can make anything sound good if you just you know uh if you just kind of know what you're doing or, or you know what i'm yeah. saying like oh it, for sure it's all up yeah. to the person who's listening to the thing but like anything can sound good uh it just depends on how you use it you know right and it it yeah it, it's it's the creativity behind all that, that that makes it important yeah i mean it is weird to think of someone <laughs> listening to something on a contraption that costs more than a cost to, to make, make the thing <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very weird. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, okay. And then you talked about uh, that being the band that took you on your first tour. So was your first tour with Boy Sets Fire or was it just, uh, or was it maybe like a, a, a short run? Then you ended up working I think, with them later. I think the second tour we did with, was with Boy Sets Fire. And the first tour was this band called, was in Kindle and this band called Two Line Filler. They were from Toronto and they were a really amazing, like, post-hardcore pop-punk band, like super good songs. The singer was very unique. In hindsight, he probably was on the spectrum, but like very socially awkward, but like really, really amazing. He would write and play almost everything on their records. But there's a whole group of people there, like specifically their drummer uh, became a lifelong friend of mine that I still see every time I'm up there. And, and um yeah, it was it was awesome, you know, just like in a shitty van with no air conditioning and the singer of Kindle Mark, his dog would come on tour with us. So we he would just be in the loft with us and oh, it was man. just awesome. I mean, yeah. I think on that tour we played like uh we played with Silent Majority and um just yeah, just all, you know, just a lot of it's hazy. I wish I had more records or took photos, but I was like We still a teenager. I had no, yeah, I mean, I was 19, and I, I didn't have a job, and I just would go on tour with no fucking money and just, just like, scrounge my way around. It was just truly surreal. Yeah. You know, no, you know, as as those old days were, like, no, you know, there's no cell phone, there's no nothing. I wouldn't call my parents, you know. I, in hindsight, it's shocking to me that they weren't just completely freaked out. Like, I'm going to go on tour for two weeks. You don't know where I'm going to be. You don't know anything. I'm not going to call you, whatever. They didn't, they've never told me that they worried, which is pretty amazing. Oh, wow. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was wild, man. It was a lot of, uh, we didn't, we weren't, I don't know. We weren't crazy. I don't think everybody, I think everybody in the band was straight edge, but we just got into trouble and did stupid shit. You know, it was, yeah, you're, it was you're fun. probably yeah. shoplifting to eat. You're doing Definitely. yeah, like all sorts of yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's the stuff you yeah. do when you have no money and you're playing houses or basements or, or whatever else. It's like, whatever you can to, to get a meal, you, you're, you're going to do it. But that's amazing. I love that. Did you get the bug pretty quickly? Were you like, this is something I want to keep doing? Yeah. I mean, I, I loved it. I, I've never not enjoyed being on tour. I mean, there have been a, you know. There's always bad days, pretty, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's bad days. And, I, and there's been a couple tours like in the Coliseum era that were really long and had these moments where I was like, I'm in an, I'm in an industry that I don't give a fuck about, right? Like when it, when, it, when it reaches into that, like, this is just a machine, I don't give a fuck about that, right? I never have. And so, but we did a couple things like that and we were like, okay, we don't do that. You know, we, we, you know, I don't, I don't want to be part of something that doesn't feel like it connects to me in any way, you know? And, but overall, I just, I just really like it. I mean, there's no, you know, this as you know, as much as anybody, there's no adventure in life that compares to that. And like all the things we're saying here, like I, I think about watching like Goonies or something when I was a kid and you wanted to go find a cave in your backyard or you imagined this thing was that thing, you know, you, this, there's going to be some cool adventurous thing behind you. Like all those kind of eighties movies that grow up, grew up with like fucking flight of the navigator or something. And going on tour is like that still at age 45 for me, it's that way where it's, 
every day is something new. Every day is exciting. Every day there's a, probably a point when I'm ecstatic, tired, stoked, scared, you know, like all those things. And, and that just injects life in such a way and, 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 and stokes creativity and community and all those kind of things. Like I do get really freaked out and it's harder and harder, like being a small band and, and, and sustaining that stuff. But I, I like, I fear the time when I can't do it. So I'm always really appreciating every moment because I want to do it as long as I fucking can. Right. Like I, I'm like, you know, the tangent again, but sometimes I'm like, okay, how will I do this when I'm 70? Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, uh, you know, I'm not sleeping on the floor, but this hotel room bed is not comfortable and I've got to fucking cart my bag and guitar up eight flights of stairs in Europe with no fucking es- <laughs> you know, elevator. And, you know, that kind of thing where you're just like, I don't, I don't know how the fuck I do this, but yeah. I want to keep doing it, you know? So maybe that one day that will stop it. Yeah. yeah, that that bug just hit me and never ever left. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah, that's I completely agree. Time isn't slowing down. I'll tell you that. Well, all of a sudden you're just like, no. oh my god, how am I already this age? How is this already <laughs> right. happening? Um, that's amazing. So uh, I wanted to quickly just talk about uh, the National Acrobat because that's a band that I love a lot. Um, was a very uh, influential band to a lot of my friends. Uh, when we were, when we discovered it, um, I also love that it came out on status. Like there was an EP yeah. that came out on status. Uh, the dude, Seth, that ran that label, it was funny. He had a magazine for a minute there called status magazine. And that was, um, that was the first publication that, uh, I ever got to write for. So I used to do, oh, I did okay. some album reviews and show reviews for that, um, with some other friends. So when I remembered that that EP came out on status, it's like, warmed my heart a little bit because it's you know nostalgia and all of that sorts of stuff um but looking back on it now i'm kind of curious like between with you and your brother and everything like that like what do you think your influences were for that band going into it because i just compared it to stuff that i also liked at the time you know botch bands like that but I'm curious for you guys making the music, like what was your driving influence? Was it like Jesus lizard? Like what was the thing you guys were trying to kind of emulate? Yeah, I think, I think it was probably dead guy drive like Jehu. Um, I, you know, vaguely some of the gravity, you know, three one G stuff, but also like, you know, I have to give all credit on that band to Evan because it was his band that he started and played guitar in. And then I joined on guitar halfway through the band and, and kind of like, you know, weaseled my way into the band because I would, I would book their tours and drive them. And I just thought they were the shit. And so kind of worked out that I could just ended up being in the band and, but like DC stuff, you know, I mean, Hoover and Fugazi and, and just, all that kind of stuff, ignition, Swizz, I, I know was really big, Ink and Dagger. Um, I'm sure Botch was an influence, but it, it felt like all that stuff was going on concurrently. Yeah, at the same you know, time, Botch for and, sure. Yeah, Botch and Dillinger and, um, you know, we, we played with Isis and Burn It Down a lot and all that stuff. And again, all those people were very welcoming to us. Isis would take us out for a string of shows, Dillinger skate plan took us on tour. And in the hindsight, it's kind of crazy because again, like everybody was just weird kids, you know? And, 
and the music was really confrontational, um, but all that music was too. So yeah, I'd say that would, I think Dead Guy was for sure a big one. Jehu for sure, Swizz, Ink and Dagger, all that kind of stuff. Like Jesus Lizard, we got into as we were doing the band because people kept comparing us to Jesus <laughs> Lizard. It's funny how that works sometimes. Yeah. And we, other than like Peg Boy and Naked Ray Gun, for some reason, I think we kind of missed a lot of the touch and go stuff. I think we were so obsessed with Discord and... When we were kids, Slint was such a huge presence in Louisville that I think we kind of rejected that as kids. Of course, I love it now, but we were like, oh, you know. So we didn't really pay attention to it. So we didn't investigate a lot of the touch and go stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's weird. So it was a little bit later when we got into like Girls Against Boys and 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 Digits and, and like all the touch and go shit. Yeah. But um yeah, it was weird. It, it is funny how like you you read a review and everyone compares us to Jesus lizards. Well, we, let's listen to this, you know. And and Evan's memory might be different from mine, but I know we did not have like Jesus lizard records growing up as kids. And yeah, all this other stuff. Interesting. That's so interesting. Um, especially with like Breather Resist then coming a little bit later, where I feel like you would hear more of that sound in in there. But it's interesting that he wasn't like you guys both weren't instantly into that as, as kids. It's always interesting to find stuff like that out. Um, was black cross the band that kind of came after that for you two? Yeah. So, um, national acrobat ended and then Evan was trying to start another thing and it hadn't happened yet. And Rob Pennington, the singer of black cross and Endpoint by the Scott, he came to me, I don't remember why, but he just was like, Hey, I want to start a band with you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and you know, I remember yeah. us having like a burrito and him, him asking me. So we got Tommy Brown who had been in the Enkindles and by the guy to play drums. And we tried out a couple people on bass, but it wasn't quite working, but we were practicing in my basement of the house. Evan and I were sharing. And it was literally like, I went upstairs and said, Hey, do you want to come down here and play bass? And he's like, okay, I guess, you know, so, so that was, that was kind of like Evan joining by the grace of God, I mean, joining Black Cross. So it was literally just like, hey, come down here and play. And he's like, okay. So then he's in the band. And that was our thing together. While we were doing that, he started Breathe Resist. And then I started Coliseum. Got it. Got it. Because, yeah, that seemed, that band seemed a little short-lived. Because it was first called Black Widows, right? And then became Black Cross. Um yeah. How were you already doing uh, a lot of album art around that time? Yeah, I think so. Like I worked for initial records first as like, my title was zine guy. So, you know, I would send things out to be reviewed and do ads. And that's how I knew all these people like, you know, Ryan Canavan from Hang Like a Hex, you know, still a good friend, Seth from Status. I mean, I was a collector of all this stuff anyway. I still have copies of Status for sure up in my loft. Yeah. And, uh, but then I started, then I became the graphic designer for initial so I was designing all, all of Initials records or, you know, working on the creative direction and, and helping people clean up artwork and stuff like that and learning as I was doing it and then started doing album covers. I did some National Acrobat design before I was in the band. I did some design for Christensen, who were uh, my co Terry, the drummer of Christensen, worked at Initial and, you know, they were on Revelation. Revelation, yeah. Yeah. And then just started doing things for people I met, like designing shirts for hope conspiracy and suicide file and you know did a bunch of design for suicide file and it just kind of kept going and going and going you know it's kind of like 
kind of surreal. Yeah, so it, it, doing my own bands and then just doing anyone that you know was interested. Um, I remember specific because you did the album cover for the Black Cross record. I'm assuming, right? Yes, the Art Offensive yeah. record. Mm-hmm. And I remember that specifically being one of those album covers that I was at a record store and I saw the cover. And I didn't know what the band was yet because, you know, Internet was still not exactly what it is, is today because early 2000s. Uh, and I remember just picking it up and being like, I don't know what this is, but I'm buying it. And then looking at the liner notes and being like, oh, I'm already a fan of people that are in this band. Like, I didn't know anything about it because I think it might have been a secondhand copy. So there might have not been any sort of like sticker saying who was in it. I don't know if that was even a thing at the time. Uh, but I remember specifically buying that just because the album cover struck me and I was like, Oh, this looks fucking sick, you know, kind nice. of a deal. That's cool. That's uh, cool to hear. Um, what was your experience like doing that at initial? Was that like an exciting job just cause you're like kind of now getting paid to like work in the, in this world that, you know, you're coming up in. Amazing. I mean, and you know, and, and one of the questions you mentioned was like, when was the, the, the time that, that I felt like I had, I was in this thing that I've been dreaming of or whatever. And that is, that is it. Like Andy Rich, who owned initial was just like, Hey, you want to work here? Like, cause I was just coming and hanging out all the time. And then, and so I have not had a straight job since 1998. <laughs> right, you know? yeah. like, so, I mean, I have, I have made a living, you know, at sometimes, sometimes it was just getting by or whatever, but it was through, working in punk rock and art and our community for, for a long fucking time. And, and he is, he is the person that, that ushered me in, taught me things, was welcoming. Uh, my coworker initial at that time was Kelly Cox. He and I did shirt killer together. He, he was a partner in shirt killer for a long, long time. And, and, um, and so, yeah, that was just that straight up trajectory, right? Like after initial close, I just did freelance design full time. Then Kelly and I reconnected and we ended up doing Shirt Killer, which, you know, it still exists. And Cat Magic Punks just came off from that. And so, yeah, it's like totally insane, man. It was like a dream come true. And I could book my tours on the initial phone. And I had an initialrecords.com email address, which opened pretty much every door. And yeah, so like, you know, doors were open to me and I had to do the work, right? You know, I had to like the band had to be good enough, you know, to, to sustain, but that really was a huge thing in getting the national acrobat black cross and Coliseum off the ground. I just got to ask out of just being a nerd. Uh, do you have any stories that immediately come to mind of working with ink and dagger on that record? Because I have to, well, imagine... I was, Go ahead, I was right after that. Oh, so I okay. kind of missed all, I missed all the ink and dagger stuff. Okay. Like I might've started working right after um there's so much lore with that band so i was curious if you ever had any sort of your own wild interaction not really well kind of so and we played some shows with them and kindle did uh automatic played with them a few times and and in kindle stayed maybe it was automatic one of us stayed at a house in philly that don and sean lived in but they were on tour and um the only thing I remember, this doesn't really have much to do with them, but, you know, Eric Wareheim had been in the band of Tim and Eric and they had the, they had all these video, maybe Eric lived at this place. I don't know. All these videotapes of weird shit. <laughs> and somebody had been a, a, uh, wedding videographer and they had all these weird clips they cut together of weird shit at weddings, you know, people puking or like, 
you know, somebody grabbing somebody's ass and it was like stuff like that. And then somebody, again, maybe this was Eric, had won a contest to be on Baywatch. And we're watching this video, but they're videotaping everything when they're on Baywatch. And people keep coming up to him and like, put the camera away. And so they'll shut it off. And they put it back on. So they're filming all the backstage shit. You know, anytime somebody squabbles or something's weird. And then he's like filming in like the locker room where like somebody is changing from Baywatch and it ends with somebody being like, shut that fucking, you know, the camera shuts off. So I'm, that's, that's my, that's always stuck in my head. And when, when Tim and Eric became a big thing and I'm like, I know this is part of that world. Right. Like yeah. Some weird secretive, you know, and those people were just always getting into the most fucked up shit, doing <laughs> insane stuff. But like, right. I, I kind of, at least with initial, I came in like right after that, but I mean, those records were huge to me. And it, that's a weird time because we all thought that band would be at least as legendary as Swizz or whatever. I mean, we totally. thought they were good, but I feel like they kind of were missed. Like, I feel like there's a, a whole kind of CD focused era in punk and hardcore that just like, you know, people know it, but it, 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 it just, it's just under the level where like Ink and Dagger should be like, kids should be wearing those fucking shirts you know and stuff like that you know? yeah it's they're, they're still very much like a if you know you know band like they like you would think in a just world that they would be in the same conversation as you know a converge or something like that where it's just like the most important band but they're yeah they're like you know a, a few tiers below where once you're already in once you've discovered this music then you kind of hear the stories about oh this band that you know I remember someone once perfectly describing as like on paper, if someone said, yeah, they were a vampire hardcore band on paper, that should be terrible, but it was fucking awesome. <laughs> like everything about it is fucking awesome. Where it's just like, they were really good at harnessing all of the things that came into that. Um, yeah. My only experience with seeing it live was going to, you know, when Jeff Rickley sang for them, you know, Touche played, Touche played a few of their shows, which, was really quite special to get to witness, you know, just even hearing the songs sonically, you know, being like, fuck man, this band was so cool. Um, yeah, they were, they were absolutely incredible. The first time that I think I saw Coliseum was, am I, I'm not wrong, right? It was, there was the tour that was Coliseum painted black. Um, and, uh, what was it called? From Ashes and Rise. From Ashes Rise. Yeah. yeah I yeah. went to the Troubadour show. Okay. Of that. Yes. And just had my fucking wig blown but blown back, you know, where I was just nice. like, Jesus Christ, like every band is so goddamn good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you mentioned uh, doing the zine stuff for initial and having all these different contacts and stuff. I find it so interesting that you've been a part of so many different record labels and stuff like because that first Coliseum record came out on Level Plane, which is like which was known for being a primarily like Screamo ish label um what was the what was the context there like what made you want that first release to come out on there considering it's such a different style band i don't remember how i was in touch with greg from level plane i don't remember how it started sure but i know black cross played some shows with hot cross and we had known jamie getz who's in lit golden sky for a long time since the national acrobat days so I'm not really sure, but I remember I sent out the Coliseum demo to a few places like, you know, I really wanted it to be in that like prank, you know, his hero's gone yeah. kind of world. And 
and Manic Ride Records responded, and and Greg Trudy from Level Plane Records responded, and and I was like, yeah, Greg, let's do it, you know. And I was I was maybe after that, but I did a, a lot of design for Level Plane. I designed a bunch of records for them. Oh, I don't even know if um, I realized that. Yeah, I designed like Hot Cross. Fair Trades and Farewells, like an EP. Oh, my God, that makes so much uh, sense now that I'm thinking about yeah. it. I designed another, some later records of theirs where I didn't do the art. I just did the layout. Yeah. Designed this Lit Golden Sky record that has like a yellow sun on it, and it's it's all die cut. Super, did a bunch, a ton of shit with, with him. And it was weird because it just felt natural because these were friends. But every once in a while, I would get that thing where I was like, why is this D-beat band on a Screamo label? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I have to admit that I didn't know anything about, I knew Hot Cross because we played with them, but I didn't, I missed like Saisha and all that kind of sure. stuff, you know? So, yeah. um, so I didn't really know the context other than this is a cool label. I like the guy, yeah, you know, yeah, I like yeah. the bands. So, um, but yeah, it was cool. I, I have been worked with so many cool labels. It's really insane. Yeah, yeah, I do. I feel like you've, you've truly like had, had your experience with so many different genres within all these different labels too which is which is really fascinating to me um i just want to uh quickly mention because i was definitely going to so many of these shows and seeing so many of these bands and stuff like that from your area like i was the prime age the prime everything for like seeing lords a bunch of times i saw you know all that sort of stuff and when i think of that era i think of full stacks you know like these bands that would just these bands that were playing diy spaces but having to bring in like 12 amps to play and I guess my just roundabout question is, were there days on tour where you're like, I wish we could just bring in a combo? <laughs> <laughs> I think back then we were just like, this is what we fucking do. And it yeah. was kind of like a, it was like a very punk rock, like, fuck you. You know, people are like, you're not going to bring all that shit in the basement. Yeah, we are. You know, I remember Coliseum brought, a vocal PA on the early tours. Cause I was like, we're loud and I'm sick of playing these shows. We're knowing, you know, and, and genius hack, by the way. Yeah. I mean, pain in the ass, but it, 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 yeah, it was just a thing, you know, it was just our, our thing. And it was, it was fun, I guess. Cause it was unified. I mean, black cross did it breather Lords. You know, we all just were like, we are these, you know, and, and yeah, and of course, as time goes on, you're touring a ton, you know, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you're just like, uh, I don't think I'm going to break my back today. Yeah, you know, yeah, but, yeah. And you realize, like, but, combos can be just as loud as, as a full right, stack. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember we toured with Boris Coliseum did, and they and they had their, their like, second guitar player that plays with them sometimes, and he had just had two twins, and they were so fucking loud, and I was like, oh, okay. I mean, a twin is fucking very loud heavy yeah 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 too. yeah but, but very very loud so yeah but that was that was a time and it was fun and it was just again just like a crazy yeah like a re-energized re what's the word re-energized us it, you know that i felt as excited in 2004 doing that as i had in like 97 98 so it was like a really fertile time for all of us i think Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math, that's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. 
They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Something that I have always respected and really loved about Coliseum and what you've done with that band, what you did with that band over time is like that it kind of showed that it doesn't matter uh like you don't have to stick to the same sound you know like your band can grow and like that band had so many different iterations sonically that i always thought was really cool that whenever there was a new coliseum record coming you didn't know what you were going to get you know whether it was going to be more straightforward rock whether it was going to be more um yeah almost like drive like jay who like because when it started yeah it was like a db band like i think uh, you know i have so many fond memories of like the goddamage ep like i love that ep so much had the shirt all of that sort of stuff um and then seeing the band even like way later where you're like okay yeah this is more like a dinosaur junior sort of thing now um and yeah i was just kind of curious like have you thought about that in retrospect like going into starting a new record being like it doesn't matter that the last one sounded like this because now it sounds like this I mean, back then, that was hard, to be honest. Like, it, it just was, I, I think there's so many factors. And I think the lesson I learned, to be honest, is that, like, people generally want you to, to they want to know, they want to have an idea of what you are. And with that band, I think because it went so long, you know, it started when I was 26, it ended when I was, like, 38. And that's a that's a big period of time you know, emotionally and all that kind of stuff where what you're saying is cool to hear, but that's not what we felt like in the middle of it. You know, it of felt course. like it's a retrospective oh, hindsight God. 2020 yeah. situation for sure. Right. And, and there's so many things like, I think I see this band in two stages where there was the first record up to no salvation was this kind of thing. And I actually, you know, and, and I hesitate to uh, talk badly about something that I made that, someone might appreciate, but that record was a hard record for us. And I felt like didn't quite, I think we, we succumbed to our own pressures about what we thought we needed to do to, to, to make sense in that world of being on relapse and recording with Kurt. And, you know, we were hanging out with Converge a lot and all these bands that were very complicated and that's not how I write songs. And I was trying to do some things that maybe were against my nature just by my own choice. Yeah. And then, so then there's that next House with a Curse era on where it was a very linear progression. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. I mean, it's kind of the question you ask about when I was a kid. Uh, Coliseum, I think I was very uncomfortable in my skin in that, in all those years. And there is, I can, when I listen to it, if I do listen to it, it's, it's hard for me to just have a clear perspective on it because yeah. I was so wrapped up in it. And that's why I had to stop because I just couldn't see the forest for the trees anymore mm. because you just yeah, drilled yeah. It into the ground and all I saw were failures. And, uh, and now I just, all I see are all the successes, you know, like all the, the rad shit we did and I, and I appreciate it all. But when you're in the midst of it, it's just hard to like break that barrier and, and appreciate it. That makes a, um, a lot of sense. Yeah, it's like it, it is sort of a downside, but a weird silver lining that like once you've divorced yourself from something like that, you can then take a break, step away from it and then look back on it and see all the beauty in it. You know, like it's, uh, you know, 
or or a more <laughs> or like when you break up with somebody and then you only just think about the nice things you know what i'm saying <laughs> right easier, of course it's, yeah. it's easier to not think about the bad things about it anymore you know because you're just gonna fantasy or, or uh or think about all the the happy times absolutely um let's talk about photo crime it's it's so good. The new record coming out is is so excellent. Something that I that uh, I didn't catch that you did at the time um, that I just want to talk to you about is uh, I heard the Leonard Cohen cover of Avalanche. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'm a big Leonard Cohen guy. Uh, I'm very jealous of your vocal range being able to very much encapsulate that sound. You know, you have that very beautiful baritone voice. Um, you, what was your intro to Leonard Cohen, and how did you get into him, and and what do you think about him now? Uh, it was definitely uh, the movie Pump Up the Volume. They he plays Everybody Knows. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. That was huge to me. That was the first time I heard, ever, ever heard Bad Brains. Wow. The soundtrack had Bad Brains with Henry Rollins singing, covering MC Five. It had Sonic Youth. Um, it had Concrete Blonde covering Leonard Cohen on the soundtrack, but on the movie he puts on the song. Wow. And I remember it being very like weird right because you hear it and it's like so deep and and his, his vocal is so like beautifully like kind of atonal in ways and and i bought like leonard cohen's greatest hits from uh columbia house music you know when you get all those cds yeah, yeah, for yeah. a penny or whatever and uh so yeah i mean that was it and like and then i i, I appreciate it more now and i would say that i'm not like the most fully well-versed fan you know like, yeah like songs of love and hate and 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 uh uh old skin is that old skin for the new ceremony new skin or? for the old ceremony new skin yeah, for the old yeah, yeah. yes yeah those two are just like perfection you know those are the ones i listen to all the time yeah um but yeah as i as i as i try to embrace singing in the way that feels most natural to me i look to him a lot i look to like mark lanigan i look to these people that like made this voice that I've always seen as a singer prior to photo crime as a detriment. I've always fought against it, trying to embrace it. Mm. And from, I kind of like that cover was kind of like that, like, let's see if I can tap into this a little bit, you know, like, like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like after all these years to be like, let's use this thing that I have yeah. instead of fighting against it. Like I always did for some reason. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the, the thing that I find so beautiful about, his voice is like, yeah, he's not exactly, he, he's like a Dylan where it's like very limited range, but he was so smart that it's like, oh, well, if I put some really beautiful, uh, like woman accompaniment on top of what I'm doing, it'll just make me sound even better because they're actually going to do all the pretty stuff while I can just kind of stay straight in the middle here. Um, but no, but I mean, with the music, the photo crime makes, it's like, that's the kind of voice you want. Like the very, like, you know, joy division-y sort of like lower register sort of thing and so when you started this project what was your driving force was this just like a genre of music that you were always a fan of um and you wanted to try your hand at it because it feels very thought out and methodical like you've had this idea for a long time like what was the driving force when you started it yeah i think like i think for sure i've loved this music since i was a kid like you know like i mentioned earlier all that stuff on MTV when I was in like seventh grade, like Depeche Mode and The Cure and all that stuff. Like that's that's right up there. And I I knew that stuff before I knew punk or hardcore. And um so that, you know, post punk like wire and and 
Gang of Four, like all that stuff has just been, it's just been part of it. And I think it's all been part of the music I've made always. But, but Coliseum got into more of a post-punk realm as things went on. And then when that ended, for the first Photocrime record, I really wanted to see if I could write and record an entire record myself. Like, could I do something that I did every part of it? And, and I did. And could, can I find a way to sing where I'm not fighting fighting against myself. I just felt like I was really doing that a lot in, in, in uh, Coliseum, like really stretching and it, it's works just fine, but yeah. Can I embrace this? Can I find my register? Can I do this? And also make music that didn't feel limiting. Like not that Coliseum felt limiting, but kind of like I was saying, I wanted to set a path that like, I could really do anything and it wouldn't be that crazy. Like you know, Coliseum could, I mean, Photocrime could put out a record that sounds like Godflesh or sounds like Sparkle Horse. And I don't think it would be that shocking right. either way. Yeah. And that was something I wanted because I didn't want to feel trapped musically. I wanted to be able to explore things, but also, you know, I really love the sound of synthesizers and drum machines and, and, and work on my craft as a songwriter and, and, and now as a, you know, producer and engineer and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a huge, it's also, it's been a, a time of change. It's basically been my, all of my forties. I've been doing this band and, yeah. and, and finding, you know, that you're more comfortable and, and, and content and it makes the music better for me. So I noticed that the, uh, the first release came out on your label, which is auxiliary. And, uh, I wondered if that was you, trying to you know relate to it myself where like i do a label and i had the side project thing called hesitation moons and the th and the first thing that we ever did with that was put out on my label because my thought was like i don't know that i trust that this is good enough to make someone else pay for it <laughs> so maybe i'll just do it myself was that just i'm curious if that was sort of your motivation too where you're like i don't know if i'm ready to, for someone else to put money into this so i'm just gonna put it out <laughs> Well, mine was probably the opposite. I think I think when I first did the when I I was so proud of and happy with that first uh, photo crime record. Like yeah. I recorded it with Jay Robbins at his studio, and, and just to just to accomplish something that was so different for me. But but I was like, wow, okay, this is cool. Yeah, I was fucking I was high in the clouds about oh, it. Okay. And I thought yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, this is gonna be the thing, which. You know, I hate that about myself, but I also appreciate that, like, you got to have dreams. Yeah. You know? I still think, like, so, yeah, I mean, honestly, my, my putting it out myself was more of a, I'm tired of waiting, tired of, you know, the, the people that I worked with before weren't interested in doing it. And so I was like, all right, fuck it. So, which, you know, will always, I'm, I'm a DIY guy. Yeah. So, you know, that was, but yeah, it, it was, it was, it was more like a fallback, but also <laughs> like, that's that's fine. You know, yeah. like it's, it's not a, you take your, your reality into your own hands and that's the greatest thing about punk, you know? Absolutely. Uh, quick note about auxiliary. I, I love that when I just look at the releases that came out on it, it felt like you were very influenced by discord where you're like, well, I'm going to put out was, am I fair to say that almost every band or if not every band on the label was a Louisville band? Yeah. I think the only thing that wasn't was maybe we did a Doom Rider split that like Level Plane did the CD and we did the LP. Right. The Dan Coliseum and Doom Riders. The Danzig, Danzig thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I think everything else was Louisville. And that was the idea. And, you know, I thought of trying to like, 
What's interesting, you know, like you're, you're, it's just a little, it's a different time, you know, but I, I've thought about trying to revive it in some very, very minuscule way, like maybe do yeah. ultra limited cassettes with a bunch of art in it or something cheap that, that just feels like it's totally about the art and there's no commerce involved at all. You know, I, I hate the. I hate the the commerce part of all of it, you know. You know a band that you put out that I wish I got to see, got anything from, uh, other than just the seven inch was that Pride Swallower band. That band was yeah. so cool. Like they're so good. Yeah, like I've never I don't think I had ever heard a band try to emulate Nirvana and actually kind of pull it off. You know what I'm saying? Like they were like the closest thing to like a punk Nirvana that I had heard at the time. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, that band seemed to not very, to not last very long, unfortunately. And I don't know how much they actually toured, but yeah, they toured a bit and they kind of would come, come and go. And and I, that seven inch I recorded on cassette eight track at, Uh, at, uh, at my practice space. Yeah. And I have some songs that they record. I can send you that were never released. They're they're, they're the best songs. Yeah. Fuck. They were awesome. Everybody who knew them here and saw them, loved them. And but yeah, some music's more magical when it just has this moment. Yeah, you know, than, than if it, it it peters out. Yeah, we played just... we played Skull Alley that venue in in Louisville, and I, I remember they had a a, a box, you know, like some seven inches you could buy, and there was a Pride Swallower test press of that seven inch in there for for like twenty some odd bucks, or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm buying that. So I I, cert- I definitely have that in my collection here. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, no. So it's, I had a uh, Brian from. Um, knocked loose on the show a a, a while back and something that i love that he talked about was because he said he has such louisville pride is that it doesn't matter who the band is like he buys every single punk band or hardcore band that has ever come out of that area like he has to have a copy of it kind of a thing so i know he has a ton of the stuff that you've put out just because he's got that that Louisville pride, you know, like, like they wear that stuff as such a badge of honor, which is something I find super cool. It's very cool. And that, that, and I, I relate to that. Cause like when you were saying that, that Coliseum era, we did this, like all that Louisville stuff. And we had our little Louisville version of the DC flag and like, yeah, yeah, that we were, we were very much like all about that at that time. So I can relate to that with them for sure. I totally love though also of that era with you designing stuff is uh, I loved the collab shirts that you guys did. I think a shirt that I wore to death that I'm, that I, you know, grew out of over time was the cursed, uh, the cursed breather. The, no, it was, no, it was, yeah, there was the cursed breather resist mat mix shirt i think there was one yeah, yeah it was like the cursed goat with the breather resist mask, mask I yeah think. yeah 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 and we did a, a coliseum breather resist one that was just like every bit of shirt and record art we'd done at the time and stuff it was so yeah cool. that might have that might have predated the converge mashup shirts i don't know yeah, i feel like i think it did a little later yeah, yeah it definitely yeah. did um all right so uh i mean and now we could hop back over to, to photo crime i love that uh, you guys, you, you like put out records on profound lore. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's like another instance of like, um, you've been a part of, you've got to put out records on so many different labels of so many different styles from like level plane to initial to relapse to now profound lore. And, but you're challenging that audience because profound lore is known so much for like metal and death metal and doom and stuff like that. But it's this like cool eighties synth pop band, uh, kind of a thing. So, 
Um, was that exciting for you to like get to work with him in that capacity, putting out that style of music? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he does have a history of that stuff. Like soft kill put out a bunch of oh, records true. with him and true, true, true. And, uh, he was like the, the label that, that like kind of broke lingua ignata and, but yeah, he, I really loved working with, with, uh, Chris from Profile More because he is, he's just one guy in a small town in Canada he just, he does everything out of his house, you know, and he's just, he's just all about the art and it's just really neat. And, and I mean, I, you know, I get the feeling he probably has a few metal records that sell a lot yeah. so he can just do whatever, but yeah. And again, it, it's, it's, it's like these long-term things like soft kill did put me in touch with him. But even before that, Aaron Turner from ISIS and Hydrahead and all that I've known forever. Sumac did some, some, uh, records with and old man gloom did records with profound lore so it again tied into like this kind of ongoing community and, and it was cool it didn't it, it was just like really easy but it was also like the weirdest time because our first record with profound lore came out right as the pandemic shut everything down yeah and then i just had nothing to do so i made another record which came out and the pandemic was still going on yeah you know it was like we thought okay we're gonna pick up steam and we were like Okay, the end of 2021, this shit's still not, yeah. you know, it's still not going away. So it was a super weird time, but... Um, Is that how you kind of got through that time with lockdown and everything like that? Were you just like, I'm going to pour everything I have into photo crime and just keep making music? Yeah, I mean, it was like, I mean, God, so much crazy shit for sure. But like, um, I think for the first... We had like a huge family trauma, like a month in where my cousin, Matt, who was Coliseum's first drummer and he'd been in Lords and he, he overdosed like a month into the, the shutdown, right? Like in April, 2020. So there was that was really intense. And then having this feeling, I don't know if you had this, but other people I talked to at the time, like it was like with music, with with all of us musicians and, and artists, when, when our, when our world was taken out from under us. I felt guilty and lazy that I wasn't immediately making more music. Right. Yeah. And it took me a long time to just be like, you know, it's okay. Like I'd never fucking played video games before I played, uh, red dead redemption Two. you know, like it like saved my life. I was like, I'm in this other world. You know, I'm a cowboy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm very relatable. Know? I did the same yeah. thing. I did the same thing. Yeah. Also how to, we we were finishing the last Touche record that ever came out. We would, you know, our last one, we finished it as the pandemic was starting. Like we were in the studio when the, when concerts shut down and we didn't know how to behave. You're like, are we allowed to still be in the studio? What, like, is this okay? You know? And then we finished it and then it came out and, you know, we had to wait a year and a half before we could play shows. So I can relate to you in that. I can also relate to feeling like, should I be being more productive with my art, but I'm like, I just want to play video games and, and not talk, you know, and just like you, you, I, I totally relate to all that. Also my sincere condolences on, on the loss too. That's yeah. I know a lot of people like, you know, experience things like that as well. So, um, was it hard for you to get back on the horse, not Red Dead Redemption <laughs> related, but to, yeah. to start making photo crime songs again though? Like what, like, did you just wake up one morning and say today's the day? I don't remember actually, but I, I set up, we, I've always done, I've done photo crime and Coliseum demos with drum, I mean, I did Coliseum demos with drum machine since like 2009. Yeah. And so 
I just thought, okay, I'm going to try to record this next photo crime record, Heart of Crime, which came out in 2021, myself. And so I set the front room of my house where I already had a little demo set up. Like I talked to Kurt and I said, hey, what are some really good monitors? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend a bunch of money on some monitors. And, and just amassed a small but nice setup and just started doing it. And it was, it was life-saving, you know? It was like so much shit was going down you know, all the, the like black lives movement. And, and I was really involved in that. And like my cat magic punks company, like we blew up and raised a bunch of money. And that was all really intense. Cause like Brianna Taylor shit went down here. And so we were in the streets and then it was also like exciting and scary and terrible. And, you know, it was like every fucking thing was going on. So music was this really calm thing, you know, and, and, I was living alone at the time. And so any time, day or night, I could just start making music. And if it was 1 a.m., I'd record some songs. And so it was it was awesome. And, and it, 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 it was kind of like another step, like I was saying about the first photo crime record. Then it was like, okay, the third photo crime record, can I record it all myself? Can this work out? Can I accomplish this? And... So yeah, it, it was it was huge for me, and I, I feel like of of any record I've done, I feel like it's kind of a sleeper. It has a few songs I think made it out there, but it's one of those ones that I I do feel like sometimes somewhere somebody will be like, oh okay, the, this is you know it's a little more it's a little weirder and a little more like you know stripped down in a lot of cases, but yeah, it, it definitely saved me, man. It it was amazing, and it gave me so much focus. And then after that. I felt confident enough to kind of build out a space to make it into a studio and, and the new photo crime record kind of took all that up a next step and made it even, even more involved in terms of the production and, and brought in Nick from Breathe Resist and Young Widows to be our guitar player and Will from Xerxes and to be our bass player. Because after the pandemic, I was like, and I did a tour solo as photo crime in 2019. I was like, I don't want to be alone. Yeah, (laughs) After all this shit, like, this huge tour I'm playing alone and it's cool, but then recording this record, I'm like, I want my friends to be around. So Nick had always played guitar for us prior to 2019, but bringing them in, that was also huge. Like you just, I don't, didn't want to be alone. I love the company of my friends. Yeah. Yeah. So this new record, when is, what's the actual release date on it? September 8th. Amazing. Amazing. It's, it's so good. It's so hooky. It's so, it's so catchy, hooky and catchy, same word, but same thing. But like, yeah, it right out the gate, it just strikes me as like, this is a familiar sound that I really like. I think if anyone ever cared about Depeche Mode or New Order or any of these things, you can instantly be like, oh, this is absolutely for me cool. so yeah it's great to hear it's, it. it's awesome. excellent man well you already you know early on you you already kind of answered the question but i'm curious um if we can just maybe build on it a little bit you know you mentioned working at so the question being when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you had been working so hard towards you mentioned working at um initial records and having that sort of like i'm now working in the industry like this is you know my last sort of straight job uh, or anything, you know, kind of a deal. Was there ever like a, a show or meeting someone working with someone? I mean, right at the gate, you, you know, something I'm just, I caught was Jawbox being your first punk band. And then you recorded a record with Jay Robbins, 
you know, like that's kind of a full circle moment. Like, is there anything else that stands out to you? Is that kind of a moment? Yeah. I mean, working with Jay, Jay recorded the Black Cross album Mm -hmm. and uh, that was really big. You know, I was a massive Jawbox fan, massive fan of all the things he recorded and having him come do that was really special. And then he ended up doing the last few Coliseum records and then the first couple photo crime records. So at this point, like the majority of the music I've recorded has been with him. Yeah. And that was huge. And to have him be my, my friend and contemporary and in a lot of ways, a a mentor too. Um, It's been really amazing, you know, and with all this stuff I see, you know, there's all these different levels, right? Like maybe for black cross recording that record art offensive with Jay, that was probably the moment with Coliseum, you know, early on, it might've been some of the DIY shows we did with, did in Louisville that kind of became big. And we were like, well, cause black cross never really played to many people. We were a really small band and in Coliseum for a moment, it kind of hit the zeitgeist in Louisville. And it was like, Whoa, okay, this shit's cool. You know? And like with photo crime, I can remember when on that 2019 tour, I, the last show was Roadburn, and I played solo in a small room at Roadburn, you know, with like a fucking line down the block that couldn't get in. And it was just like, okay, you know, just those moments where you're like, you know, I, I feel, you know, I'm very much under the current a lot of times, you know, and, and it's always a kind of an uphill battle. And when you have those moments that validate all that fucking endless work, it's just so amazing. You know, it's like when I, when those shows happened and I'm like, Oh my God, thank you. You know, like I'm so thankful for this moment and these people and, you know, I just cherish it so much um, because it's just, it, you know, for whatever reason, I'm just one of those artists that's like, you know, like, I don't know, like we're saying about Ink and Dagger or something like that. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm down there on the tier. And so it's like, I'm always kind of working hard with like, it's blood, sweat and tears to make everything happen. And so, yeah, those are the kind of moments I can think of those, those, those periods throughout the band and like, they're just so, so the different bands. It's so meaningful. It's, it's really wonderful. Hell yeah. I love that. Thank you, dude. This has been great. It's been nice yes, seeing you, you and catching up with you and, and everything. So thanks for doing the show, man. It's, it's, uh, it's been, it's been great. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and, and I'm honored to be on here. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Ryan for coming on and thank you for listening. This episode was edited and made to sound oh so nice by my man, Ryan Rainbow. And also there's a bonus episode available right now. If you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Ryan answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. If you enjoyed this and you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this, please do so. Leaving a positive rating and review means the world to me and it helps the show. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your week. Take care. Bye. Bye.